Welcome to episode 82. Today, Dr. Greg McClure and Dr. Melissa Kahneman-Taylor talk to us about how we can make co-teaching partnerships more equitable, especially for language specialists who have marginalized identities. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. On paper, the content teacher and language specialists are valued equally as they're equally educated and licensed. They receive the same compensation package and enjoy the same benefits of being an educator. However, in reality, there's a clear difference in power and this power differential is felt by the teacher, students and community members alike. In this podcast, Dr. McClure and Dr. Kenman Taylor encourage us to reflect on how power inequities impact our co-teaching partnerships. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Greg McClure and Dr. Melissa Kahneman-Taylor on the podcast. Welcome back. I am so happy to always show the other side of a topic. And so I was interviewing Dr. Andrew Hagensfeld, the Dr. Andrew Hagensfeld, a guru of co-teaching. And when she said, oh yeah, I read an article called uh, Pushing Back Against Push-In. And I was like, oh, that is a podcast waiting to happen. So I'm so excited to have you both on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, love it. Can we start with what is an event that has really informed your teaching practice? When, when I was thinking about uh, an event for me, it goes right back to my first year's teaching in 1992 in South Central Los Angeles after the Rodney King riots. It was the city was still in the wake of so much tension. And I was hired because I spoke, speak Spanish and I was hired to serve the bilingual education program and um, within three short years of being a teacher, I was the bilingual program coordinator. You know, I was rushed through the, my first job, all of a sudden in a leadership position. And there was a lot of tension between the majority African-American student and teacher population and the incoming newcomer Latino population and the teachers who were serving exclusively those students because we were in segregated environments. So there was a lot of distrust and a lot of um, hot, uh, emotions. I remember kids from my colleague's classroom running down the hall. I had a closed door and they would bang on my door and run away, disrupt my teaching. It was just a horrible, uh, tense experience. So what I do when there's tense experiences is I turn to art oh. and I was listening at the time to a band called Arrested Development. They're, um, yes. they, yeah, they're so good. They were known as the hip hop trailblazers and cultural champions of consciousness and empowerment. And the music is still great. And there was one song I listened to over and over. It was called Revolution. And so I, with my bilingual kids in February, we're celebrating African-American History Month. I said, let's do a performance of this song for the school. And I had, I was so young and so naive. I had no idea how powerful, resonant and um, revolutionary the lyrics were. You know, they had, um, are you are you doing as much as you can for the struggle? No, am I doing as much as I can for the struggle? Then why do I cry when my people are in trouble? My ancestors slapped me in the face and said, go Harriet Tubman told me to get on up. Anyway, it goes into all the history of, of African-American um, heroes of the past. And my kids are performing this, my Latino bilingual kids are performing this for a mixed race school and the mood shifted. It changed the dynamics, the relationships between myself and my 
um, colleagues of different races and language proficiency. The students had, you know, new kind of um, respect in the school for having done this hip hop song as newcomer Latino students. So I, I would say that was the a really a, a teachable moment for myself that when when you're in doubt, when you're having trouble communicating, when there's tension, the turn to the arts. So in that case, it was dance, performance, and music, but um, you know, poetry, theater, whatever you got. Your well, turn, Greg. Before, <laughs> your turn. before you go there, I just I just wrote down the words like I bow before all drama teachers because the mas mastery and the skill set that they bring to open up students to a new world is I always bow to them. So thank you for yeah. that little lyrical uh, musical interpretation right there. Well, and I'll just say that at the time I was a third grade teacher or fourth grade, I think was my first year and then third grade. And I wasn't the art, I, LA Unified had no paid art teacher position. So I was, and no PE teacher. So I was everything. So we had art section and I taught that and we had PE and I taught that. But um, I also wanna say that we shouldn't rely on our drama teachers and art teachers that I really promote the empowerment of all teachers to turn to the arts, not as handmaidens to math, but as like, you know, teaching the tools that the arts gives in terms of multiple perspectives. That's all I'll say, okay. It, it's like you're saying like, uh, all teachers are language teachers. So we can say all teachers are drama drama teachers as well, right? Absolutely. So that's what your book is about. Can you tell us your, the title of your book again? Oh, yes. Oh, my new baby. Have you seen it, Greg? I'm so excited. Oh, yeah, I, I, have a, I have a copy. Oh, yay. It's my favorite new thing. Enlivening Instruction with Drama and Improv, a guide for second language and world language teachers. And it assumes no background in drama. Um, and all the joy. That would be perfect for me then. <laughs> Greg, your turn. Love it. So, so just to just to tag on there, I would say um, all teachers are artists. So, uh, a great way to think about that. For for me, um, and I'll just share this. Uh, I'll share this image that I that I grabbed here. Uh, we were joking about my locks. This is me with a lot of locks on my graduation day. Wow. Um, here at my alma mater. And so, you know, I'm a professor at the place where I got my undergraduate degree. And at the time, I couldn't have pointed out on a map where the College of Education was. You know, I had no intention of being a teacher. Um, and so I graduated and... Uh, went straight to Guatemala and worked as a human rights observer during the last year of the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, and, you know, that's where my life as an educator began. And so I quickly found myself um, working with a group of women who came from three different uh, ethno-linguistic groups uh, who were all return refugees from the Guatemalan Civil War, and they were now living in the same community and they couldn't communicate with one another. So um, during the day, while the men were off working the fields and kids were in school, uh, you know, the women uh, were the folks left to build the fabric of community. And they couldn't communicate with folks outside their, uh, their home language group. And so, we started uh, Spanish language classes. And, you know, I had no experience as a teacher whatsoever, but I knew Spanish. And so this, uh, this experience really was the foundation for me in coming to understand the importance of relevance and context in teaching, uh, and in particular language teaching. And so I moved very quickly uh, to an understanding that uh, the basics of the alphabet and pronunciation and basic vocabulary, those things are not the most important to language learners. Um, it is the moments and the experiences that connect our lives to one another. And for these women, it was a history of violence and resistance and survival. Those were those were the words they needed to share with one another. And so, you know, I fumbled my way through uh, a powerful learning experience and our 
language sessions emerged into experiences around building community gardens, um, crafting dramatic reenactments of their resistance to the violence, um, community plays, um, where language involved much more than words. It involved, uh, you know, feelings, emotions, um, and building common, uh, building some common language, if you will, around shared experience um, to build community. And that, without a doubt, shaped my life um, as an educator more than any experience that, uh, that I've had. And I, it took a while, but uh, I think I have, uh, I've come to understand the importance of that experience and I've built it, built some of those lessons into my, into my pedagogy and, and my philosophy of teaching, so. I wrote down the word, the name Larry Falazzo. Mm -hmm. The reason is because yeah. um, I think of you as Larry Falazzo because he came to teaching through community organizing. Right. And, that, and I think teaching is serving. So, so right. all of us serve in different ways and yet you're, you were rooted in, in community organizing and now you serve in a different capacity yeah i know larry's work uh we've met once before uh i think at tsol many years ago but um yeah i you know i definitely see myself as an activist and an organizer and uh much more so than um you know my identity as a teacher is not you know teaching it's um working with folks to get them uh, to increase the material conditions of their lives. So, Before we go on, uh, Greg, can you tell us the name of your institution? Because I want to say the regional name correctly to honor the people in West Virginia. Absolutely. We're Appalachian State University here in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of uh, Western North Carolina. North Carolina, my apologies, not West Virginia. <laughs> no, you got it. There we go. Well, I'm so excited for you to talk to us both about your article. And can you talk about the, what was the seed behind this article? So I'll, I'll jump in and say, um, I worked for five years as a director of English as a Second Language in a school district in North Carolina. and. Towards the end of my time there, just before I left to start my doctoral work at the University of Georgia, um, we were moving as a district to uh, push in inclusion, co-teaching. You know, we didn't really have a name for it just yet. Um, and so when I started my doctoral work, I was coming fresh off of the uh, experience of, of being a district administrator in a place that was pushing co-teaching with um, without a whole lot of knowledge um, about how to do it, um, but they knew it was better than pull out, right? right. Uh, and so we're gonna do it um, come hell or high water. And so, um, that was really uh, the impetus. You know, I, I came to the University of Georgia pretty clear in terms of what I wanted to study dissertation wise. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was concerned about the lack of scholarship at, at the time around co-teaching in, in U.S. public schools um, and in what I began seeing in Georgia um, with regard to school districts, just, you know, it, it very quickly was becoming a trend. Here we go. We're going to do this. Um, and yeah, so, so I'd say that was the seed. Misha, do you want to yeah. add? And I, I'll just add, yeah, at the time when I was so lucky that Greg chose University of Georgia and I got to work with him, I had a grant at that time um, recruiting bilingual teachers. It was a federal grant. We called it the Teachers of English Language Learners, the TEL grant, and funded by the Department of Education. <clears throat> and um, it was to recruit bilingual adults who were not in the teaching profession to get teaching certification and to go into Georgia school environments. And many of those recruits were already paraprofessionals or working in some capacity in the school district, but uncertified. And this is the 
uh, just Teachers Act Up book that we have. So that was a publication. And we used, I used, um, I've always been a fan, uh, a big follower of Paulo Freire and Augusto Boal. And uh, Augusto built on Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed with his work, Theater of the Oppressed. Mm -hmm. And what we noticed was it's one thing to recruit bilingual adults into teaching but it's another to support them through the experiences. Inevitably, they were experiencing some of the same aspects of language discrimination or monolingual centric education and um, work in schools that the students experience. And so we developed um, theater based focus groups to kind of keep uh, to, to address the kinds of recurring struggles that the bilingual teachers had and start to try to perform multiple uh, additional endings. You know, how might the story end differently to break the, the struggle? And several of those stories involved co-teaching, you know, an ESOL teacher pushing in uh, or a bilingual teacher pushing in. And, and those stories seemed, we, we were in conversation, Greg and I, and it resulted in this piece. And TESOL Journal was so wonderful because they were able to include videos because it's an online journal, so we could showcase these um, segments and his research, uh, a focused case study with push a push-in uh, environment and my hearing the stories, it just made for a nice joint publication. Right. I remember reading your article, and the thing that I loved most reading about your article is the, the transcription of the things that were said during the acting, right? So it would have, you would have a content teacher Right. And then you would have the language specialist and then the language specialist would say like, uh, so the content teacher would say, no, 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 sorry. It's a, this is an English speaking school. You can't speak Spanish. And then you could see the transcription of like the teacher of like, uh, looking at the kid and looking back at the content teacher and being like, what do we do? Right. And so you, I was like, yes. And I thought that was so great as a form of professional learning. If teachers were able to, to use your model and just say, let's act out what we see happening and let's act out alternative endings to that right and it's not it's not like finger pointing it's drama dramatizing and i love that you're adding another way of dramatizing professional learning like we dramatize uh, instructional practices as well so mm -hmm. could we talk about we'll get to that in more uh, can we talk more about what's so problematic about uh, co-teaching which you've uh, written very clearly about so uh I would um, I would say first, um, you know, co-teaching is not inherently problematic. You know, co-teaching can be transformative and generative and beautiful. Um, I think the challenge really is that the way school districts um, often market or hail co-teaching as a panacea or an edict, um, that's, that's what leads to much of the problematic, uh, nature of co-teaching. Um, you know, we can talk more about what some of, you know, what some of the challenges are. I think they're, you know, I think they're fairly obvious. Um, but I think in understanding where those challenges come from, it's important to recognize that, you know, co-teaching is about relationships. It's about two human beings figuring out how to be together, right, at its beginning. And then if you look at the next uh, concentric circle around that, um, it's two people figuring out how to be together within the dynamic of a public school setting. Um, and so then you have all of the the challenges that come from a system that uh, rewards efficiency, uh, reward standardization, um, you know, so at the core relationships, all relationships obviously need time. Um, they need commitment and, you know, uh, we've written a little bit and I've written, um, another piece that, you know, relationships need to be consensual. <laughs> Oftentimes co-teaching relationships are not. You know, and that's even one of the, uh, you know, that's one of the excerpts in this piece as well. One of the one of the pieces that is acted out, you know, is the co-teaching edict where teachers are mandated to work together without any, 
you know, and that's that's very much um, a reality. Misha, do you want to add to that? I think Greg said it beautifully. I mean, I I I think we can do a number of things to build the consensus and the consensual of the relationship. One is to let teachers choose. You know, they have friendships, and it's beautiful to see when two good friends work together. It is more than the sum of its parts. You know, when people yeah. trust each other, they trust the knowledge each brings. They can relieve each other. They can do that creative co-construction that we talk about in the article. And short of that, how do you incentivize con uh, collaboration between unlike people or people who don't have a previous relationship? Well, you, you have to build in, you have to acknowledge that that's a priority prior to pushing people without consent together. So it, I, I do think there's a variety of things. One is to ask teachers would they prefer to work on their own or with someone to give to make it a chosen selection to have incentives and benefits because it does take more time you know when you're doing something jointly or collaboratively at least the initial investment is requires extra resources so for the for those collaboration teachers give them a paid professional development day or days or summertime to work together or something fun to do that's not work related. You have to treat it like that you're giving extra so we're going to give you extra and and allow people the flexibility to determine if and when it's working or not working to make a change. All of those kind of things. We need to humanize it. Do you want to add Greg? Oh no, I think I think we've covered that. Okay. That was great. Yeah. Okay. So what are some incentives that we might um, suggest to, to teachers? I guess principals, administrators, if you're listening now and you don't already have a co-teaching system at your school, start take Greg and Misha's recommendation to ask teachers to volunteer. Don't volunteer. Uh, so. <laughs> Have teachers say, hey, we want to move to, to this. We have a five-year goal or two-year goal of moving towards this, more inclusion. We want to have people pilot this first. Let's volunteer. I would like to have people volunteer, and I will think about incentives to help uh, make this more of a desirable program for you. So what are some incentives that you might have teachers uh, be give to te teachers? Um, I think... Um... You know, I really, uh, I really like what Misha said earlier. Um, you know, co-teaching has the potential to be much greater than the sum of its parts, um, and you know that's what I that's what I meant earlier when I said co-teaching can be transformative. It can be generative. Um, there's the potential for um, there's there's the potential for a creative an engaging classroom space if we invest in it. And so I think um, incentivizing teachers in a, and administrators in a way that that targets their their own professional development um, as opposed to framing co-teaching uh, more as a punitive um, situation, which often is the case. Um, in, in my own case that led to my thinking about this, it, you know, it kind of went like this. Our English learners are not performing as well, right? Boom, deficit, negative. Um, we need to improve that. Special ed is doing co-teaching. It's, you know, look at the outcomes. Um, and so we're going to do this. I need each principal to find one teacher at each grade level. You know, it's this um, punitive approach as opposed to um, really looking at it from um, an opportunity to grow as a teacher, yeah. an opportunity to challenge yourself by learning from another, an opportunity to teach and share your skills with another. Um, those are all the things that, um, that we miss when we frame co-teaching or we lead with um, the negative or the punitive approach. And so I fear that, um, you know, that unfortunately is, is how we often, uh, we often lead. And so I would encourage folks to approach co-teaching as opportunity and potential, 
potential for professional growth. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's much more exciting than saying, okay, you third grade team, figure out which one of you is going to co-teach, right? There's not much, uh, not much motivation arises from that email. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That was like teacher therapy for me. <laughs> I often go to schools and I, I will, my narrative is always like co-teach as much as possible. It's inclusive. It's better practice. And now I, I understand I should reframe it in a different way. And so just like the way we talk about kids, like we can't, we don't think about them as what they can't do. We always mm -hmm. think about what they can do. And now we talk about teams as well. Like, hey, you're not doing well with your multilinguals. Instead right. of saying, what can we do for these kids together? So thank you for that. Can you talk about uh, the inherent, and you, you wrote in your book, um, your article, I'm gonna read out the article. The, I'm gonna read a certain text in the article I thought, I thought was brilliant. Although school districts have pitched partnerships between ESOL and grade level teachers as more inclusive than segregative pullout models, the lived experience of these partnerships can actually reinforce the marginalization of ELs and their ESOL teachers. That struck me and I was like, yes, absolutely. Can you talk more about the inherent power dynamics in co-teaching relationships? Well, power is alive in every relationship. <laughs> and so without structures that have helped to create a trusting, collaborative, constructive relationship between the teachers, with a set orientation from the get-go that this is going to be an inclusive environment, you're always gonna be at risk for reproducing worse relations rather than improving relations. So, you know, I, I think what we need to do, well, you know, I turned to theater many times. I think that um, we need to build agentive strategies for language teachers for the teachers who are going to push into an environment that is not their own. It's very hard as any push in teacher or any extra special teacher knows to have someone else's group, the ensemble that is under someone else's direction and you come in as an outsider, it's, it's already set up for failure. You have to be superhuman and edutainer um, to, to, to win or, or you end up in that kind of compliant role where you're doing little tasks, you know, to, to help the main teacher kind of thing. But I, I'm reminded of this a quote, I can't remember which um, theater director said it, but there are, oh, it's maybe it's Hemingway. There are no, sm there are no small roles, only small actors. Yeah. So I think it's important for whoever is pushing in to know that any small opportunity you have as an assistant can be a large role. So it's also about shifting our orientation to what it means to teach, because sometimes what it means is running and making copies. But it's a different experience if you know, if you have the sense that you are respected as a colleague running to get the copies versus you're an underling doing the bidding of the main school teacher. So I think having those conversations is essential to be clear and to have portraits of how co-teaching can work and that nothing is really off the table. What may look like pseudo compliance or compliance by running and doing copies can actually be a very effective collaboration, but it has to be on the outset spoken as such that, you know, there are many different ways we can move as pulleys or as, um, you know, sometimes we're here, sometimes we're here. Uh, we can't always be both leading at the same time. That just doesn't work in any relationship, as many of us who have had them know. <laughs> so that's, yeah. So, Greg, do you want to add to what Misha said about the dynamics of power relationships? Maybe just a bit. Um, you know, I think uh, the, quote, the quote that you shared uh, really references the, the reality that these co-teaching relationships, if not tended with care and patience, uh, forethought, um, often do reinforce uh, the power inequities. Um, oftentimes, uh, ESOL co-teachers themselves are from non-dominant identities. Um, they may be non-native English speakers. They may often not be white. 
um, they may hold several non-dominant identities and, you know, public schools may be wonderful spaces for lots of things. They are also, um, they are also microcosms of our social reality and, uh, racism, discrimination, prejudice, uh, those things are alive and well in classrooms, uh, and as some of the examples in this article from 11 years ago, uh, you know, illustrate, these things are often, um, you know, they're, they're, not they're not covert, they're overt. Spanish is not allowed here. Yes. You, you know, um, that is a direct assault on uh, a teacher's identity and yes. sense of self, um, you know, and those things happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is important, um, it's important to acknowledge that uh, those overt acts of racism and discrimination and linguicism um, happen in co-teaching partnerships. Um, obviously, the ones that are mandated, um, they're much more likely to happen. And so, um, you know, it goes without saying, if there's a hostile teaching environment, um, we're not going to create a very effective learning environment for students. Right. So yes, we have to start to that that kind of naming of the isms and naming of adults, adult uh, challenges that we have to overcome. How can we ever expect positive learning if we can't have the adults learning how to get get along together? Yeah. I wrote down the words marginalized kids equals marginalized adults, mm -hmm. right? Because like I'm, when you said non-dominant identities, I'm gay, Buddhist, and Asian, right? And then I don't speak English as a first language, though my mm -hmm. English is the most dominant language. And I've mm -hmm. had teachers ask me, so tell me before we start teaching, what is your qualification? Right. right. You know, like what, what kind of relationship does that start right away? And then Misha, you talked about like the structure of co-teaching is already inherently uh, leveraged towards the, the homeroom teacher or content teacher, because you're only there for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So you, you, they're not your kids. You only have a certain amount of kids because for example, now I'm a content teacher. So I, so I have 20 kids, right? And so I see them as mine and those kids see me every day. And so they see me as theirs, but then the co-teacher comes in and that dynamics is less because they spend less time. Right. Mm. That's, so I think Dr. Rojas said, Virginia Rojas says, he said, uh, uh, teaching is politics, right? And so, and politics is power. So we really have to talk about how are we seeing, I guess this is a reflection for teachers to say, if you're working with a co-teacher who is who's an ESL teacher from a non-dominant minor uh, community, how are we seeing them, and are the power dynamics there? So now, how do we address that if they're there? Well, go ahead, Misha. Oh, I mean, you know, how do we address it? Look at our country. Look at the United <laughs> States right now. It's a mess. I mean, if we had that answer, we would have a peaceful country with uh, much less risk of the Delta variant. I mean, you know, uh, of we're now in a pandemic and we can't even figure out when we have a universal medical health issue, we can't be on the same page. So I, I don't think there is an answer. I do think there are many answers. Yes. There are many opportunities. So, you know, we, we have, when we dramatize these struggles, the, the ensemble that we're working with, which is the teachers, a group of teachers performing the struggle and figuring out, okay, what is the teacher who's experiencing uh, linguicism coded as racism coded with linguicism and these intersectional, you know, the quadruple multiple multifaceted uh, kinds of um, biases that one can experience as an adult, what are your options? You know, if you're in an, an environment in a school context where the administrator is also hostile or not attentive, then the answer really is to change environments if you can get another job. I mean, this is, you know, people need to stay employed. So I, I recognize that it's not always so simple to just leave. Um, but one has to find the inner support system or a group, a network that can sustain you 
through those difficult situations, which may be insurmountable depending on who you're paired with or who your administrator is. So I think there's all kinds of steps one needs to consider. What are my options for how do I live in this and through this? How do I maintain my integrity without risking my job security? Um, you know, that's a balance. Sometimes it's not worth having that job, but you have to understand the consequences of the of those moves. Um, so I, I wish we could figure it out. I, that's, I think we're going to spend our lives doing that and it, on every level in our communities. I mean, I, the other day, I'll just add this. I saw our mayor who is under some attack right now in our community uh, for something that seems so strange. It's, anyway, he's out there on a Saturday with his garbage, picking up garbage off the street, just around our neighborhood. We're, we sh we're in the same neighborhood. He's not, he's not on a popular street. He's not doing this for promotion. He's doing it because he cares about picking up trash in our city. And I drove by and I said, wait a second, I am, I am so grateful. So even though I could, I turned around and I took a picture of him and I posted it on Instagram because I want everyone in the city to know that he's a human with flaws who is out on his Saturday picking up trash. So I ask myself, what can we each do as witnesses to nourish love and care and uh, positive growth and the focus on kids? And what are we kind of overlooking? What little moments can, can we engage in to help promote the positive visions for collaboration that we wanna see? What do you think? Um, I just wanna say I miss being with Misha. That was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the, the piece that I would add, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and I, I'm speaking from a place with all the privileges, you know, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male with tenure, um, you know, and at the institution uh, that I'm at, um, and specifically the program that I work in, in elementary ed, our student population is 93 plus percent white. And, you know, so I, I say this with some, some real emphasis that the, the work that teacher educators need, need to do um, really needs to shift uh, towards critical reflection for pre-service teachers and not in the passive blase way, you know, we've reflected to our heart's content for the past two decades, um, you know, but particularly for white educators um, to really reflect on um, how their role uh, as teachers in classrooms where the majority of our students are not white, um, how that role shapes things. So, um, you know, I'm thinking uh, back, uh, you asked earlier before, uh, before we began, uh, you know, how the year has gone. And so, you know, um, I'd say the most significant aspect of my professional identity is as a teacher and so this past year has been challenging and difficult, you know, working completely over Zoom, um, trying to build community to connect, to encourage deep, thoughtful, critical reflection. Um, you know, and, and I think back to one moment, um, one very powerful moment that occurred um, in the spring semester uh, in a graduate course, um, Again, 100% of the teachers identified as white. They're all practicing teachers in elementary schools. And uh, it's a course, uh, it's basically a uh, critical multicultural education course. Um, and uh, this, uh, this particular semester, the course was grounded in anti-racist pedagogy. And so we did a lot of uh, personal writing about experiences around race. And um, anyway, this uh, one particular student, um, you know, identified themselves in their school as the advocate for black students and black children. 
um, her colleagues identified her as the advocate for black students. And she prided herself in speaking up and considered them her babies. And, um, you know, about two thirds of the way through the course, um, and she had done all of this writing and reflecting and uh, um, was proud of the work she was doing for sure. Uh, and then her own, uh, her own senior daughter was asked to the senior prom. Uh, and again, just a virtual prom uh, by a black student. And um, she then realized her own personal challenges with, with race and racism. And had just a complete, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say transformation, but she, you know, she had a breakdown. Um, she had a real crisis of figuring out um, who she thought she was as a teacher and who she was finding herself out to be um, when race and racism, you know, showed up, you know, in front of her eyes. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have a lot of work to do in teacher education to not shy away from very challenging, difficult tasks that we ask of ourselves and our students, particularly those of us, um, you know, who hold uh, lots of privilege. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, I think that's a big part of our work as teacher educators. I'm in the privileged position to talk to both of you because you work with pre-service teachers. So you really help shape the next generation of teachers. So what would you say to, let's say the people who are listening, like let's say uh, other college professors are listening who also work with pre-service teachers, what would you tell them about, uh, cons what considerations should we take when we're thinking about teaching teachers about co-teaching? Uh, and I, you know, those moments of being disconcerted or uncertain or uh, lost, what I wish is that we start to harvest that feeling and talk about the strategies we use to navigate uncertainty, confusion, contradiction. You know, just like in that story you said with the woman who thought she was the most uh supportive and then all of a sudden found her personal I, I think those are that's what the i'm a poet as well that's where the nuggets of the most important learning are is are in the, those spaces of great uncertainty <laughs> we tend in the united states culture to run away we want certainty we want to control we want to know the answers the artists want to know the surprises want to know the contradictions, the uncertainties, the lack of clarity. So this is, you know, I was thinking, Tan, when I was um, in my own little uh, atmosphere of uh, coming back to Wi-Fi, I was like, you should, I, I just published a piece, it'll be coming out in TESOL quarterly on querying language curriculum. And it's all about looking for those spaces of normative behavior as language teachers, and to start to question, what are we What's are we not seeing? Where are the moments to turn the table upside down? Who's already on the upside down table? And how can we take lessons from what we don't yet know? So that's that's what I would say is uh, we need to train ourselves and we and our students because as we've all noticed, if you're of any age right now, everything is going so fast. Mm. Who would have thought? these businesses that we thought were fixtures in our economy would fold and the new ones who would think would I never could have imagined this zoom platform being my new present reality what's tomorrow who is anybody's guess and the infrastructure needed and when you lose that infrastructure what happens when your cell phone is gone you know we have to learn how to be flexible and play with the tools that we have that kind of bricolage um, you know, how do we, how do we become the, the, the most uh, strategic, in the moment, flexible bricklayer who grabs whatever tool is at our disposal? That's what I would say. Greg, what would you say to add to that? I would, uh, I would build on that and, and really say that, um, 
you know, in teacher ed, we need to model um, what we are, you know, what we are talking about. And, you know, specifically, when you go out and teach in third grade, you don't just interact with your third grade students. Yes. You have a student who has special needs. You have a student who is working with the ESOL teacher. You have a student who goes for speech therapy. Um, you know, and th there's no preparation for how to collaborate with other professionals in teacher ed programs for the most part. And so, you know, I, I think we need to model and build into our teacher ed programs um, opportunities to see what it looks like to collaborate with the special ed teacher, see what it looks like to collaborate with the ESOL teacher. Um, you know, we may, uh, you know, it's probably one of our state standards, you know, in every state, you know, is learning how to be a professional and it's in there, but we really don't practice it. Um, so, you know, building that in, uh, you know, why not have uh, elementary ed majors and special ed majors or uh, ESOL majors, folks getting licensure in ESOL, um, you know, do some collaborative case study work together. Um, you know, it's, and I think, I think that pairs very nicely with what Misha was saying about, you know, what tools are at our disposal and how can we best make use of them to strengthen ourselves so that we can uh, not just survive uncertainty, but, but thrive and create really, uh, you know, new opportunities and new spaces um you know you know i love what i love what you said about the artist you know really looking for and thriving in the surprises and the unknown and um if we are so if we remain so transfixed on control and certainty and closing our door and teaching you know it, in isolation um, we remain uh, shut off from from those surprises, and uh, you know it inhibits our own professional growth. I think and personal growth. I would have loved that as a first year te as a pre service teacher. I would have loved to have sat with the content teacher and then a, a, like a session with them saying like, how do you collaborate for te mm -hmm. for students? And I would because the first time I collaborated with teachers as a teacher wasn't in college it was right in front of kids and that was maybe sure. not the first time it's kind of like here are the keys to the cars right. i've never i've never driven before well good luck let me know how it goes <laughs> right and I, I think i don't want to speak for you but you know thinking back to my own experience as a beginning teacher you know there there was so much a sense of uncertainty and a sense of powerlessness and you know, not a whole lot of confidence about what to do. And, you know, if we can help strengthen that um, before it's, you know, before the stakes are high and you're dealing with, you know, real children's lives, um, you know, we need to be doing a better job of that. Yeah, we never had pushed in when I was a teacher, you know, it was so long ago, but we did have pull out. So my kids in my bilingual class would disappear for speech therapy or for special ed services and then come back. And I don't remember ever having a conversation about what I could do during the day that would facilitate their learning apart from those small sessions that they would have with the special teacher. And I remember having one student who had terrible um, anger management uh, issues. And on my own, I think I looked for strategies and I remember buying um, bean bags. And when he would lose it in my class, he got, I would have him go out in the hall and throw the bean bags against the wall. I just was looking for any strategy on my own. I wish that we could have those conversations, not only between the, the pull out, push in teacher and the, and the main teacher, but also, you know, group uh, grade levels and school communities what are we all doing the problem is we don't have any paid prof enough paid professional time and when we have it it sucks sorry for that bad word i don't know i mean we just we we waste so much time with hiring somebody for, from outside who's a professional 
rather than just giving nourishing time to have courageous conversations together with our faculties. And I wish administrators would shape those kinds of conversations. Let's end the podcast with that. I have two questions. So, so this is my final question, then I have closing activity. You're speaking to a lot of administrators right now. What would you say to them? Because I know that they're like advocating for co-teaching, which they should, and which is great. But what should you, what, what do you want to tell them? I would just add to what Misha was just saying, uh, you know, which, you know, I heard treat teachers as professionals, let teachers grow and make decisions, let teachers guide, um, let teachers guide the instructional uh, decisions that happen in school. You know, um, the other things that we shared earlier, um, you know, are worth mentioning again here. Um, give folks a choice, create incentives um, so that collaboration results in creative growth and professional development for both uh, the grade level teacher as well as the ESOL teacher, um, you know, and, and look for ways to, uh, to nourish the relationship. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, I'm just so, my husband's a teacher and in our district, the big incentive is wearing jeans on Friday. Oh, like, you know, come on administrators. Like if that is an incentive for your faculty, first of all, I would ask administrators, ask your faculty, what do they, what kind of incentive they want? Here's what's in my control to give you. You could have jeans on Friday. You could have this, then these, there's limited menu. I've got two, I've got pressures on me. I need you to show up and do your job and I can't just let you have Friday off. But what's in my control? Could I, you know, you guys love Chick-fil-A? What if the, you know, how much can I do to rally the PTO to support or your local businesses to support a, a breakfast on Friday or whatever it is, learn from your teachers what motivates them. Let, you know, we have this big multi-syllabic word in the university, faculty governance. It kind of always makes my eyes glaze over when they talk about that, but I understand it as the essence is like the teachers and need to have a say in what's going on. So if there's a professional development opportunity, let teachers have a choice or let them say, here's a pitch. This is what I'm thinking of bringing in. What do you think? Now, that means you also have to have a positive teaching force that's like not going to roll their eyes and bring papers to grade during whatever professional development you offer. So, you know, we do need to learn how to get have buy-in and produce professional development that truly is engaging and meets their needs but also as administrator has the vision of what the needs are they may not know about and have some kind of balance but you you're hiring your faculty you've got to trust your faculty these are adult professionals with families of their own treat them that way not just not just jeans friday maybe jeans are fun on some fridays but there's got to be more than that Let's end the podcast with traffic light teaching. You can each uh, do this together. So a red light, what would you ask teachers to stop doing? A yellow light, what is something you would ask teachers to start doing? Kind of like when you get to a yellow light, you kind of slow down, you start slowing down. And a green light, what is something that you ask teachers to do as much as possible? I would, I would say I would ask teachers to stop trying to be in control, um, you know, to be okay with not knowing the answer, not knowing with what, you know, not knowing what comes next, um, stop trying to be in control. Um, the yellow light um, to start doing, okay. Um, I would say I, I would love to see more teachers start um, increasing uh, their use of the arts in the classroom, whether it's music, playing it, you know, instruments, inviting children to sing. Um, I think that just breaks up the day. It, you know, it engages different parts of our bodies and our minds. Um, and our soul. And our soul, thank you. Uh, and uh, the green light, um, I would, um, I encourage teachers to be as vulnerable as possible with their, with their students and their families. Um, you know, as much as possible. I think it encourages authentic relationships, um, you know, which make teaching uh, a much richer experience, so. 
Okay, red light, stop saying I can't. I love all of those lights, by the way. Stop saying, uh, uh, stop seeing the glass half full, like um, what, what I can't do because of this, because of that. Try to turn that around, yellow light. Start seeing what's possible. Um, everyone has cell phones. Uh, maybe document your professional practice. Find ways every day. What is gives you joy? What mm -hmm. moment did a student or a colleague make you laugh? Find ways, you know, journaling. Some people don't like journals. So use your cell phone. Snap a picture of a piece of art. Some way to document and share the what's good about our jobs because there's too many things we could focus on that are less good. So let's start documenting what's positive. And green light, love those children. We all got in this field because we enjoy that light bulb going off, those beautiful humans that we get to impact. So just keep doing that and keep your eyes on the prize. It's not really about who is in power or who has control. Like, uh, you know, stop that focus and focus on the humans that we're impacting every day. So to sum up, I've learned so much from this conversation, and I'm so grateful and honored for your presence and your uh, sage, uh, sorry, your sage advice. So this is what I've learned. Co-teaching is wonderful, yet it's inherently unequal. And I think you both did this. You said we have to table bang for our marginalized ESOL teachers. So you have been table banging this whole podcast without you knowing it. So I thank you for as a marginalized, as an uh, individual who is an ESO teacher, thank you for letting teachers, administrators know that there's a power dynamics and we have to stop to reflect on how that's uh, implemented within our collaboration. So thank you for table banging for us. Thank you thank for you your work. Us. This is really great. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. There are so many people who are involved in co-teaching, so let me share a message for each of them. To the content teachers like me, remember that our position inherently structures us to have more power. This is not our fault, this is just how the system has set it up. Remember, my colleagues, to share the decision-making with our language specialists as they are experts. For the ESOL teachers, continue to win your colleagues' trust because in positive partnerships, power is more likely to be shared among equals. For principals, market co-teaching as the highly rewarding job embedded professional learning opportunity that it is. This means we ask teachers to volunteer to collaborate instead of forcing them into partnership. It's more likely that there is a power differential when we are forced into working with others. For professors serving in pre-service programs, give your students opportunities to collaborate between disciplines. This will give them practice when they have graduated and are now working in schools. And for all of us, me included, keep on reflecting on the power that we enjoy and how that impacts the way we collaborate. Who gets the final decision? How are decisions made between two colleagues? Is one decision followed by students over the other? Is one teacher listened to over another? What are things that we're doing that communicates this person has more power, this person has less power? I think the best way to end marginalization of language specialists is to share more of our class with them during co-planning and co-teaching. This is why capitalizing on co-planning 
levels the playing field and lifts up the role of a language specialist. We can do this together. In the next episode, we'll continue the theme of lifting up language specialists by talking about how we can make pull-out programs still collaborative. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. You're beautiful.